Good morning. It is an incredible celebration this morning to celebrate that our Lord is risen. Amen. And this morning we want to take some time to explore his last hour on the cross and the last four statements that he made there and then move into the resurrection. As we start our journey this morning, we come back to the cross, to the foot of the cross to hear our Savior's very words. Last week we looked at the first three of his words in the first hours of his execution. And between nine in the morning and twelve in the morning, we, we looked at the three things that he had said. And, and the first thing that he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we saw pure grace and pure love. How could someone even begin to forgive those that had just beaten him and just nailed him to a cross? But Jesus was fully God and fully man. This was no ordinary human being. And then we saw that he interacted with the thief next to him. And the thief said, remember me, remember me. And he had faith in Christ. And Christ turned to him and said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And there was hope. And there was salvation. And there was joy. An unexpected salvation at hope and hope. And then as Jesus hung there and and didn't care about His own needs, but He looked out and saw His disciple and His mother, and He knew the anguish she was going through, and He knew that she needed to be cared for. He said, John, this is Mom. Mom, this is your son. And beyond His own needs, He cared for others and reached out to their needs. And then it was noon. And then darkness fell. Over the whole earth, darkness fell. As this event was the central event of all of creation, all of history. And nature itself knew the depth of what was going on. Because God the Father was in control. And from noon to about 3 o'clock, darkness was over the face of the earth as Jesus still hung there. And that's where we pick up our story this morning as we come to the last moments of His death, the last hour. And four more phrases that He said. And these phrases crystallize everything that Christ was about. Every reason He came. The purpose. It's why we're here this morning. And the fourth statement that Jesus made, and the central statement, and the seven, it's the center point of the seven statements. It's the center point of the gospel. It's the center point of God's purposes for all eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We find that in Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 45. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. And as we go through the sayings, again, we'll be hitting different Gospels. But in Matthew 27, verse 45, now from the sixth hour, which was about noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And that wording is very intentional because He broke the darkness and He broke the silence and He cries out saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And in this cry, we see a cry that mixes so many emotions. And if we had to summarize this words of Christ, it would be agonizing and loving substitution. Agonizing and loving substitution. What was going on? Why would Jesus say this? How could He say this? We see several things in in this wording. And the first is, our eyes are drawn to the word forsaken. Forsaken. And this is the agonizing part of of His death on the cross. And when, when He hung there, He realized that at this point in time, God the Father and God the Son, their relationship was separated. And Jesus was forsaken. And I don't think we understand the depth of that, or I don't think we can understand the depth of that. This is the central point. But the depth of the agony from this separation is really beyond our comprehension. How can the three in one be divided? How can the Trinity be divided? Imagine, if think of, of your closest friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend that you've had for your whole life. And and you're just tight with them. They know everything and they can finish your sentences and just such an intimate relationship. And at one point in time, one day you see them and you walk up to them and they slap you in the face and turn their back on you and walk away and say, I never want to speak to you again. What emotions are you feeling right now? Not good, right? That's nothing, nothing compared to what Jesus felt on the cross. The Trinity is God three in one. There has been intimate communion. There has been love between them for all of eternity, not just for all of our short lives. In John 17, 5, we read, And now, Father, and Jesus is talking to the Father, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And for all of time, Jesus and the Father have had perfect, intimate love and relationship as part of the Trinity. And at this moment on the cross, and the only moment in all of eternity, that relationship is separated. I can't pretend to understand it. How can that be? But I know that this is the darkest hour. Jesus here, as He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. A psalm about the crucified King, the crucified Savior, which says, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so far from saving Me from the words of My groaning? And at that moment, the Father didn't stop loving the Son, but the relationship was separated. And that's the agony. But that's not the whole story of this phrase. That's not the entire picture, because we have to ask the question, why? Was God just some cosmic killjoy that said, oh, you're on the cross, see you later? 
Was there a reason? And when we understand these words of Christ, we have to understand there is such a deeper reason to this that makes this the central point of salvation and the central point of Easter. See, some say Jesus was just quoting from that psalm for comfort. Some say He was just mistaken. God really hadn't forsaken Him. He just was, he misspoke. But I'm here today to say Jesus never misspoke. And Jesus never got it wrong. And He was forsaken at this moment in time. And the reason for that separation was the love and sacrifice and substitution Jesus was serving in our place. It was at this moment, at this very moment, Jesus took upon Himself our sin. And not just one of our sins, but every sin of everyone that believes on His name. And He took every one of those sins in His body and on Himself at the same time. A man that was God, that had never sinned, that had never experienced sin. And the depth of His love is staggering as He took our place. Because He knew that it would create a breach in the Trinity, a breach in that relationship for the period of time that God was looking and that Jesus bore our sin. And when we think about that, to appreciate this, we understand that A, Jesus bore our sin in our place. He bore the weight of it. All of it. It was one thing if I had a pile of bricks or something and each of you had one brick and, and I said, okay, Nick, give me your brick and I'm going to bury your brick for you. And Nick gives me his brick. And I'm like, I can do that. It's not a problem. And I say, Jeremy, give me your brick. And Jeremy gives me his brick. Rick, give me your brick. Heather, give me your brick. And we just go on. Now what happens when there's 10 bricks? What happens when there's 20 bricks? Well, at that point, I, I'm not a weightlifter. I think you guys know that. And that's starting to get a little tough. But picture Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, taking the sin of the world of every person for all time. And we get an, a glimpse of the depth of that substitution. And at that moment, the Messiah hanging on that cross, a place where you and I should have been, was completely alone. He took our place. He took our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that? For our sake, He being God the Father made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to have our sin. Second part of what He bore, He bore the cost of our punishment. He bore the cost of our punishment. And for me, this is the part that, that hits home more about the separation than even bearing our sin. 
Because it's one thing to take our sin upon our, uh, Himself, but now He is bearing the wrath of God on sin. It's not just a breach. It is a punishment. It is God's wrath being poured out on His Son. Because God in His love and God in His justice must take care of sin. There is no other way. And sin always separates us from God. In Isaiah 59.2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And that's what Jesus was speaking of when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as God poured out His wrath, there had to be a separation. See, God is love, and that is true. And the fact that Jesus is hanging on the cross proves that beyond all comparison. But God is righteous, and God is just. And righteousness and justice demands that sin be taken care of. As does love. Permissiveness is not love. It's some weak substitute. And see, God doesn't cycle through His attributes depending on the day of the week. Oh, it's Sunday. I'm loved today. And we all gather around because we like that day. Oh, it's Monday. I'm just today. And we all flee because we all have sinned. And we all have fallen short. And we don't want to hear about God's justice. And maybe on Tuesday we enjoy His faithfulness and that gets us through our heart. No, no, that's not God. God is all of His attributes all of the time. And there has never been a time that He isn't all of His attributes. And so there was no other way but, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? In 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Literally the replacement. The substitute. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we don't have to? Did you catch that? Because that's the central point of the Gospel. Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And bore our sins and bore the punishment of our sins on that cross so that we don't have to be forsaken by God. It's interesting and as you look at those words, even in the middle of this abandonment, do you see how Jesus starts it? My God, my God. There is still trust in the middle of abandonment. There is still hope because He knows there is still love. The cross demands a response. 
God pouring out His wrath on His Son in our place demands a response. And there's two different responses this morning that I would encourage. If you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you have committed your life to Him, our response should be one of unending gratitude and worship. Unending gratitude and worship. When we realize that should have been me. The nail should have gone through my wrists and gone through my feet. And I should have died because I am a sinner. But Jesus loved me so much that He was willing to be forsaken so I wouldn't have to. So for those of you that know Christ, your response is unending gratitude and worship for the relationship He bought for you. That you don't have to say those words. I think of it this way. He paid the price so I wouldn't be forsaken by God. How dare I in any moment forsake God? And I should pursue Him like a dog pursues his food dish. Like like everything I can do should be to thank Him and worship Him. Now this morning you may be here and have never consciously said, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I believe in Him. I give my life to Him. This phrase is a call for a response as well so that you don't have to stay outside of that relationship. Because until we come into relationship with Christ, until we acknowledge that He took our place and accept that and believe on Him as our Lord and Savior, then we are still outside of relationship. And we are still forsaken. And we are still under God's wrath. But it doesn't have to be. He spoke those words. He was forsaken. So I wouldn't have to be. In the last moments of his death, Jesus said three more things. Turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And we come across this phrase and we wonder how it fits. Why do we have recorded that Jesus was thirsty at this point? Why do we have recorded a phrase, I thirst? And it's a fascinating point and a fascinating, it's fascinating to understand the process and what has happened. Because I thirst represents a physical need. As someone hung on the cross, they would often become so dehydrated and so parched that their mouth was dry and, and that was part of the agony and part of the suffering. But the key to understanding this phrase is actually in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, And we come to the crux, or we at the end of the crux rather, where He has been forsaken, He has borne our sin, He has borne the punishment for our sin, and Jesus knows His purpose now is done. That's what He came to do. And so now, 
he can turn his attention and even think about some of his personal needs. You see, his needs were secondary. His needs were secondary. There was no place to be thirsty. There was no place to worry about what he was feeling until the job was done. Until the purpose was done. Earlier on the way to the cross, he had refused a drink of vinegar, gall, and myrrh. It was designed to be just a little bit of a painkiller. And he had refused that. But at this point, he accepts the, the sour wine, the vinegar wine. This was something the soldiers would have had on hand. They would have, have drank that themselves. But they often gave that to people on the cross to prolong their agony. Keep them alive a little bit longer so they could feel the pain. But Jesus here is fulfilling Scripture. In Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me poison for my food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. In Psalm 22, which he's already quoted from, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Speaking of that dehydration. And so Jesus says, I thirst. And one of the soldiers probably looks around and in the rocks finds a hyssop branch and tears it out of the rocks. And the stalk can be the, a, a stalk that's about this long or maybe a little longer. And at the top, the, the branches form like a little nest. And you could put a sponge there. And they probably walk to the cross. And the crosses wouldn't have been very high. They, the only thing that needed to happen was the feet off the ground. And they would have just held it up to his mouth. And he drank. And satisfied that. But this phrase is a reminder of two things. Number one, Jesus is fully God, but He's also fully human. And may we never say that His death on the cross was easy. Because He experienced every ounce of suffering that every human that has been crucified ever has. And so we see His full humanity but we also get a glimpse into his character. Because again, just like he always was, he was a servant. And being a servant meant that his needs were last. His needs came after the job was done and the purpose was fulfilled. That's hard, isn't it? I know it's hard for my kids when they're thirsty. They're thirsty. I can try to distract with games and with toys and let's go outside and play. But Dad, I'm thirsty. Last night, one of them just wouldn't go to sleep. And he came out. He's probably still in here. He's <laughs> like, I'm hungry. Go to sleep. You won't be hungry anymore. <laughs> I'm hungry. Go to sleep. You should be asleep already. I'm hungry. And it was like this recording that just said, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And we're like, ah! But isn't that sort of how we are with our needs? I want people to like me. Or I need money. Or I need fulfillment. Or I need status. And, and, and it's, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And just as Christ's purpose was not to fulfill His own needs, neither are ours. We are here to serve the glory of God. We are here for His purposes. And our needs are secondary. 
And so we proclaim together our needs last. Last week we saw that we put others' needs before ours, but our needs last. We go on in, in verse 30 of John 9, 19, the very next verse, which is coming off of in verse 28 where he says, knowing that all was now finished, now he says it. When Jesus has re- had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. It is finished are the sixth words of Christ. In Greek, tetelestai, it means to be completed or to be fulfilled. It's not just that it's over, but it was accomplished well. This is a word that they would write or stamp on a receipt when it was paid in full. Isn't that a great image? Because Jesus now looks out and says, it is paid in full. I bore your sins, I bore your punishment, and they are paid in full. And there is no debt remaining for those that come to Christ. There is nothing more that needs to be done. And so when Jesus says this, this is not a statement of defeat. It's not, it is finished. You know, you see that sometimes. For those of you following the playoffs and you get to the last quarter and you're, you're 50 points behind or whatever it is, and you see that on the team, right? There's this defeat. There's It is finished. That is not what's going on here. May we never mistake this. Jesus is still in control and this is a proclamation. It is done. It is accomplished. This is a victory cry, not a cry of defeat. It's the climax His purpose is finished. His suffering and dying is finished or finishing. The payment of sin is finished. Our redemption is finished. The very reason He came to earth is finished. And there is victory. I think of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is going through the Gospel and and Christ on the cross and the victory there and applying it to us and in our future victory and glorification. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We have victory. Easter is about understanding it is paid in full. It is accomplished. Amen. I was reading this week about an artist that was trying to deal with death and trying to find victory in death. And he had taken a a masterpiece and he had unveiled his masterpiece and he took a cast of a human skull and encrusted it in diamonds. And and, and he put this on display and I I should have brought the picture in, but it's sort of creepy looking because it's this this skull just with diamonds all over and it's sort of shining and... um, the skull's cast from a 35-year-old 18th century European male has 8,601 diamonds. It's a few. It's priced at $98 million. The center of the forehead is a large pink diamond valued at $8 million alone. And he was asked why. Why would you would put this together? And his explanation of his work was this. I hope the work gives people hope. Uplifting. Take your breath away. It shows we are not going to live forever, but it also has a feeling of victory over death. 
you catch that? It also has a feeling of victory over death. And this artist is struggling with where do we go when we die? What, what happens with death? How do I deal with death? Is it the end? Is this a, a, a depressing thing? And, and he's, he's coming up with diamonds and, and jewel-encrusted skulls as a way to give us hope. And I don't know about you, but it's still sort of creepy. <laughs> and there's no hope there because it's just a fleeting feeling. But on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Death, where is your sting? There is victory in what He accomplished. And it is not a feeling. It is not fleeting. But it is truth. It is an actual victory. An actual victory. That is why we celebrate Good Friday. That is why we call it Good Friday instead of Black Friday. Because of the victory. Spurgeon wrote this. I love this quote. The satisfaction which he rendered to the justice of God was finished. The debt was now discharged. The atonement and propitiation were made once and for all and forever. He had totally destroyed the power of Satan, of sin, and of death. He had done battle for our soul's redemption against all foes. He met sin and nailed it to the tree. That's what Jesus meant when he said it is finished. He accomplished freedom. He accomplished victory. And he wants us to experience that victory, to experience that freedom through him, through his substitutionary sacrifice on the, on the cross, if we will just give ourselves to him. I think about just all the things we go through. And if someone looks at me and my responses, do they see someone that has had victory? Do they see someone who has won? Not by my own actions, not by anything I've done, but simply by the grace of God? Or do they see someone who still is trying to find a feeling of victory? Church, family, The victory is won. The deal is done. And we celebrate. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 45. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The last phrase we have recorded by Jesus is a phrase of absolute trust. A phrase of absolute trust. It's a phrase of reunion, of restoration between God the Father and God the Son. And in His last act, as He intentionally gave up His life, it was not taken from Him, but He intentionally gave up His life out of love and out of sacrifice. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting Psalm 31.5 here. And it's a psalm that Jewish parents actually used for children as a bedtime prayer. 
as a way of reassuring them, as a way of, of building trust in, in the Lord God Almighty. And so the kids would say the Psalm 31.5 at night. And Jesus here is saying it because it represented a truth, a truth that meant we can trust God with anything. We can trust God with our very souls. We can trust God with any event, with any circumstance. And Jesus was trusting God for what would happen after His death. And that trust was well placed. And I'm convicted by asking, what is my trust level? What is my trust level? What is your trust level? We've already talked this morning about trusting God with your soul, and and I pray that you will. I pray that if you have not done that today, that part of the message today is realizing that we have a sacrifice for our sins and that the only way is to trust Him with our soul. But what about just the things that are on our heart? What about the things that you came this morning and maybe you lost sleep over last night? If you had to fill in the blank, blank, Father, into your hands I commit my dot, dot, dot. What would you put? What needs to be put there? Father, into your hands I commit my family. Father, into your hands I commit my work situation. Father, into your hands I commit everything. See, the example of Christ is that He can trust God with His very soul, and we know that. But we can trust God with our very moments. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. And he's speaking to a people that are, are being persecuted and saying you can trust God in persecution. You can trust God in heartache difficulties. A chaplain was being interviewed that he was actually still on the field in Iraq. And the interviewer was, was hoping to get a, a wonderful proclamation of faith from him. And so he's interviewing him and says, so, so what do you tell your guys as they go out onto the front lines and they, they could be facing death? What do you tell them? And the chaplain thought for a minute. I thought a little bit longer. And he said, I tell them to trust their buddies and trust their guns. And the interviewer, a Christian, was was just heartbroken. Because our buddies and our guns only go so far. But this morning, we can say, because of Easter, and because of those words on the cross, and because of the resurrection, that we can trust God Almighty. Even when we don't see how He's working, even when we don't understand the end from the beginning, even when we don't see a way that that this can turn out for good, God does. God sees those things. And He is asking us to trust Him with our hurts, with our very lives, and not let it consume us. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And we know after that, the temple veil was torn in two. The earth shook. Rocks were shattered. The tomb was opened and Jesus was placed inside. 
But that wasn't the end of the story because Jesus' trust was well placed. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on that third, and on the third day rise? And they remembered His words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. He is not here. He is risen. And that is why we can trust Him. And that is why we can give Him our lives with confidence and with joy. And that is why we celebrate this morning. He is risen. He is risen risen indeed. Lord God, we praise You because You are not a dead God. Because You are not in the grave, but You are alive. And we sing praises to You and we worship You. Lord, I pray that that life would be something that we experience. Because You have come to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And so, Lord, I pray now that we would recognize Your words. Recognize the gift that You have given us. Recognize the life and the hope that You have given us. And walk out those doors renewed and refreshed and ready to preach Your name to all who will hear. Lord, thank You, Lord God. In Your name, Amen.